Stay tuned next for Chris Skyhawk and Universal Perspectives. These songs of freedom Songs of freedom Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chris Skyhawk. Thank you for being with me here tonight. I'd like to thank Rich Culberson for engineering. He is getting our guest, Taylor Lamson, on the line right now. So I will tell you a little bit. As you know, as some of you know, I suppose, I've been doing a series called Surviving Late Stage Capitalism. What's next? While we go through these different planetary crises, I'm spending some time looking at ways that we might evolve out of some of our troubles that we're in. My guest today will be Taylor Lamson. He's a spiritual life coach from from Sonoma County, and he'll be talking to us about ritual and grief work and deep emotional spiritual work and how we might incorporate some of that into our lives. And, and he's calling, we're calling him right now. And I'm supposed to keep talking. <laughs> of course... I wanted to use uh, Bob Marley, the Redemption song, to open the show tonight because the situation that we seem to be in, we certainly could use some redemption. And certainly, I don't think you can ever, ever go wrong playing Bob Marley. Well, let's go ahead and see if Taylor's there. Good yeah. morning. To where oh, we lost Taylor. We'll try him again here. He's going through the Skype, and it's having a little issue with his number. Okay. Uh, go ahead and keep going, okay. Chris. I'll get it, Mom. And um, so, what 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 is yeah. your look for today's show, Chris? I'm sorry. Was what? What's your what's your focus today? Well, we're going to Taylor is a spiritual life coach, and we will be talking about grief work and incorporating ritual work into our lives and recovering some of the things that we have lost. Hello. There he is. Hey, Taylor. Do we have you, Taylor? Taylor, did we have you? We sounded like we heard you there for a moment. For a moment he was there. Go ahead, Taylor, if you're on. Okay, well, okay. well we're gonna keep hey, I'm going to try it the old-fashioned way. You go ahead and keep explaining what your okay. plot is. And... Well, I'm going to try, try and not have too much dead air here. <laughs> I'll interview myself. I like that you started interviewing me, Rich. Thank you for that. <laughs> Help me out there for a moment. Uh, we're going to get him on the landline here. So, uh, I'm sorry, I can't think of a bunch to say right now. <laughs> That's right. Tell him a little bit about the history you have with with. with well, I'll wait till Taylor's on. Taylor's a personal friend. I was telling Rich a little bit about that on the way over. We have kind of a unique, a unique event between us. And I'll wait till Taylor's on to talk about that. And, um. We almost have him, I believe. I know this is. I really appreciate your patience, people. I know it's just. It really stinks when you're all excited to listen to a show and you got a couple of guys like me and Rich fumbling around in the studio. And you think, geez, why can't these guys get it right? <laughs> But we are. We will have him in just a minute, moment. He should be on. Okay, Taylor, do we have you? Yeah, I'm here. Taylor, hello. Thank you. Well, I've been just Good. babbling away for a while here, trying to fill some dead air while Rich got you online. But here we are. So thanks for being with us tonight. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm glad it worked out. Got through the technical difficulties. Yeah, we do. Well, Taylor, as as you know and listeners know, I've been doing a series with my slot here called Surviving Late Stage Capitalism, What's Next? And I've told our listeners that you are a spiritual life coach. Would you please explain a little bit to our listeners what that means? Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks for having me on the sh- uh, radio show, and I uh, appreciate that. So a spiritual life coach is a little different from uh, the typical life coach in that I, I have a a bend on the spiritual side. I, I tend to focus more on uh, what's happening in the spiritual realm for someone uh, all, along with the other um, places that they want to talk about in their lives. And so I, I like to I like to put a little spin on the, the coaching uh, piece with focusing on a little a little bit more of the spirit and the soul. Yes, um <clears throat> I'm going to tell a little sooner a little bit about our personal story. I told them that we are personal friends, and a full disclosure here: uh, Taylor was the man who was with me four years ago when I had my stroke. So I'm literally talking to somebody. If it wasn't for him, I would be dead. So thanks for not letting me be dead, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad I could support you through that. Yeah. <clears throat> But anyway, um, <clears throat> I don't know if that's some sort of metaphor for the situation that we find ourselves in here on a planetary scale. Um, I would like to, I'm I, I wondering what you think of, I have my own thoughts about this, of course, the absence of ritual, meaningful ritual in our mm-hmm. lives. Our society has really taken it out of our lives, and I think to our great detriment. I know their ancestors, they practiced ancient rituals where we prayed for things, and I'm not talking just go to church. Um, I was wondering if you would help us out here and expound on your thought about restoring ritual to our collective practices. Sure, yeah, I'm glad that that, that came up as part of our theme, because um, I agree that uh, the, the ritual piece has been lost for the most part. It's rare to find people who are willing and able to enter into this space that is is unpredictable, and that's what ritual space really is. We set an intention, and we have a, a vision for what we hope is going to happen, uh, but once the ritual begins, uh, we really don't know what's going to emerge, and different things show up for people that they couldn't have anticipated uh, ahead of time, and that's that's the beauty of it, and also it can be challenging for people because... Um, I think our culture is also accustomed to having um, more predictability and, and things that are scheduled, and so people feel secure in what's what's going to happen. So it's a, it's a little bit different when you enter into ritual space, uh, but I think the ritual also has uh, the potential for healing that goes beyond what we can do uh, in therapy or in other forms of therapy, uh, because we're accessing the somatic part of our, our being and the places where, especially with grief, if we have something stuck in our bodies, uh, then it's, it's hard to process through that. Uh, so I think therapy is very helpful for people, and I've done some myself, and it was useful. And there are places where we can go that's beyond what our minds can take us uh, just by thought and, and processing. 
So in in the old days, uh, not that long ago, um, all of our ancestors um, had some form of ritual, and it was practiced fairly often, sometimes daily in, in some of the tribes. And it allowed for this release to happen in a contained way so that none of the emotions would get stuck. And that's really what ritual is about, is creating a safe enough container so that people can bring forth their medicine and then release whatever needs to be released in the emotional realm. So I would like to... I'm sorry, go ahead, Taylor. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I wanted to say about that. Okay. I will... <clears throat> I will dig into our personal history together to illuminate your point. I first met I think it was 2015 or 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, we met at the Redwood Men's Center, the men's retreat at the Woodlands. And That's right. Yeah, yeah right. And I, will, yeah. I will share a story. We had a grief ritual there. <clears throat> I will share a personal story, which will highlight what you just said very well. So. Great. I spent the early part of the ritual in a support situation. I, w- I kept a rhythm, and I was with other men doing some drumming. When it was my turn to approach this altar that we had made, I really did not, during that day, I did not have a thought. My mother had passed a few years ago. I was, you know, you kind of thinking, well, maybe I'll talk about this, say that. And so anyway, it was my turn to go up. I think you were with me, Taylor. I think you were there. And, yeah, I think uh, I was. All of a sudden... <laughs> All of a sudden, somebody I hear somebody on the ground. Somebody's screaming. Somebody's screaming at the top of his lungs. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? And it was me. <laughs> I had, yes, I had my adopted son who lived with me here uh, for a number of years. He just sort of faded out of my life. And it, it was really troublesome for a number of years for me. But at some point, mm-hmm. at some point, I just had... <clears throat> I just had newborn twins at that time, and I just said, well, you know, I just had to kind of let it go until that night. <laughs> all of a sudden, there was somebody on the ground screaming, where did you go? Where did you go at the top of his lungs? It was just an agony. It was me. <laughs> right. Uh, I couldn't believe it. It felt like, I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't think, I didn't think, oh, maybe I'll talk about him today. Just popped right. out of me. <laughs> I certainly could never yeah, predict it. That's a great story um, that I'm glad you recounted because uh, it's a personal experience, and um, I may I may offer something like that as well uh, because that's something that people can really relate to. But the, the point there was, you know, even if you went in with an intention or a thought around something, once you enter that space, then the ritual takes over, and and what emerges is what really needs to emerge. It's beyond our control, but it's something that we can't really predict. Um, yes, that's, that's, what, that's why at the beginning here I made a, a little bit of a distinction but between going to church and going to a ritual. Right. Because church, right. you pretty much, well, I'll be there an hour, they'll see this prayer, sing these songs. But when you enter into ritual space, you have, you have no idea what's going to happen if it's, if it's set up well and you have that exactly. kind of container. Exactly, and and what I like to do for people who are who are wondering maybe the difference between ceremony and ritual, a ceremony tends to be something that's planned ahead of time, where there's a set schedule and it's fairly predictable, 
Uh, so a wedding is a good example of a ceremony. And it's a beautiful thing, and I'm not, you know, saying one one is better than the other or trying to compare them, but there is a difference. Um, you know, we can set up a ceremony that's very meaningful, and usually it's something that we have some predictability around, and so that gives people, you know, more security, and it's, it's a safe place, I would say, most of the time. Whereas in ritual space, since we don't know what's going to emerge and we're inviting something that we may not realize is working in us, then we really don't know what's going to emerge in, in that in that time. And so it's not really a safe place, and that doesn't mean that there isn't you know a container for for it to happen. And there's usually others around to support you, but it's not this predictable place where you know what's going to happen next. Whereas in a ceremony. Even the Native uh, American-style ceremonies, um, Sundance, uh, and different different ceremonies like they do, there's a, there's a rhythm and there's there's some predictability. It's somewhat scripted. So that's that's the difference between the ceremony and the ritual space. Yes, I would like you to expound. I, I we were talking about this one example when we first met. And I know that you do ongoing grief, grief ritual groups, and can you tell us a little bit about that? And I also mm-hmm. would like to tie it into your thoughts about how this can help us with planetary healing. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that a little bit. Um, and I'm glad you're tying that into the planetary healing because that's, that's really a, a key piece. Um, so I'll just relate a little bit of my own personal experience when I when I first went to my first grief ritual back in 2012 I had a clear intention about what I wanted to to shed some tears around and I had some pieces that I had brought for the altar that represented those things and so they were photos and a couple of pieces that my kids had made and I thought oh I'm gonna I'm gonna be grieving their childhood that's not what came out in the ritual. And so as I was sobbing at the altar, um, you know, releasing all of this, this sadness, it turned out it was, it was for my grandmother, uh, who had taken her life and I was grieving that and I had never been allowed to grieve it, um, as a, as a child. And so <clears throat> it finally came out. And I think after I'd released that, it had been lodged somewhere in my body. And after I released it, I, I felt this huge burden lifted. And it was, it was an amazing feeling that I had been able to bestow, bestow this gift upon myself by, by leaning into the, you know, the, the grief and, and trusting that what needed to come out would come out. And, and when it did, it opened me up and, and I actually had more capacity for, for joy is what I found. And so one of the key points I wanted to make in our interview tonight was um, if we can expand ourselves into these areas of grief that are sometimes suppressed or oftentimes suppressed, it also expands on our emotional capacity to stretch into more joy. And that's what I found out in this ritual time is that after the ritual, I felt so overjoyed and there was this greater capacity for really enjoying the remaining time. Mm. So that was 
that was really quite a revelation. And then how that ties into the the global peace or the you know common ground that we all share is everyone uh, everyone experiences some kind of loss in their life, and many people have experienced some kind of trauma, uh, either in their childhood or had some kind of experience. And the reality is everything we love, we will lose. And so if we can come to terms with this in some way and surrender to this, I wanted to mention that. Uh, and I think that's a critical piece as we acknowledge some of the atrocities around the, the world and some of our history here, uh, to acknowledge this wounding that has happened over centuries. And uh, the first step to healing is really the acknowledgement of it and the, you know, the courage to, to go beyond the denial of what has happened. And after, after we, we lean into that fully and fully feel that, uh, then, then we have this, this opportunity for, I think, real, real healing to happen. So I think that's, that's the piece that ties into more of the, you know, the global communal scale. What is your thoughts about why, as human beings, we have lost that over the centuries? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have some I, thoughts about okay. it, but I figured I'd better ask you first before I keep on. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's see where we can go with that and see if our thoughts overlap on it. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, I think we've, we've lost this capacity for feeling the full spectrum of emotions. Uh, we live in a somewhat flatline culture. It's mostly encouraged for people not to feel too much sadness or too much happiness. Um, yeah, some people call it a flatline culture where everything is sort of kept um, in a, a somewhat settled state or superficially at least. And... Um, so if we don't if we don't allow expression a full expression, uh, those feelings are are stored somewhere, and we're we're humans and we have them, so they don't go away just because we don't express them. So I think that's that's a big part of what we've lost is the ability to to fully fully feel into uh, our feelings, and then and then the the connection with the earth is another um, critical element I think. Uh, we've been cultured, you know, in our culture, we've been, we've been taught that we need to control our lives and control nature. And, and that's, that's, that's created some separateness and isolation, um, both, both in community and with the earth. And so when we lose that connection to the earth and other people, uh, then I think, I think we have this, this uh, lack of um, compassion for each other. And, and I, I'll, I'll also add, it thought. seems like we have a lack of compassion for the earth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd be curious if you had you know, other thoughts about that. Though. I do. I think back to Europe, and I'm 100, even despite my last name, I'm 100% European-American in my lineage. And mm. I grew up as a Catholic. I think a lot about my ancestors. We had, there was a thing in Europe called the Inquisition. Mm. 
where where the people who were tribal tribally oriented in Europe were killed by the thousands. They mm. burned the stake, and, and they had their stuff taken from them too. Not only were they killed, but then the church got their property. So yeah. I have this, I have this theory that somehow, like global capitalism and these religious institutions, co-evolved together, and they didn't want they didn't want people dancing by a fire, having rituals. They wanted people go cut to trees, go mine things, go dig canals. That's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, people wouldn't do this. I was thinking earlier, we were talking about our disconnection from nature. There is mm-hmm. cultures there is cultures still on this earth, and I think there used to be pretty much everybody that still has the thought of a tree as a soul. A tree has a soul. Mm-hmm. And... That had to be severed for this capitalism thing to get through. Right. So, you know, you're not going to go out and log something that you see as a living being with a soul. That had to be, that belief system had to be changed by these dominating cultures that were capitalists and uh, the spiritual orientation became one of fear. You know, the, mm-hmm. the church, the church. It seems to me like tribal cultures, whatever their race is, they often have a, a sense of when the child is born, it's a blessing. Now, somehow or other, our Christian church came up with original sin, right? Right. So rather than being born into this partnership relationship with the culture that you're in and the earth that's here, you you made a crime. You were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's a pretty heavy thing to put on a child, but that's what yeah. that's what our European ancestors carried for centuries. Mm. And you couldn't even you couldn't even have intellectual thoughts really that counteracted what the church thought. I know a lot has been made about witches and healers getting burned at the stake and stuff like that, but you couldn't even be observant. Like the guy, he was an Italian guy. His name started to be Bruno something or other. He looked up at the sky one night and he said, I think those stars are suns, distant suns. And he wouldn't stop saying it. And they burned him at the stake too because it wouldn't shut up. <laughs> well, who's right now? <laughs> you know, you couldn't, even, you couldn't even be observant. Like, hey, I think those stars might be suns. It might be other galaxies out there. Oh, guess what? We're going to fry you for that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the kind of fear that, that was prevalent in Europe for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And then those mm-hmm. people came over here and and colonized Africa and the Middle East and, and what, what's now called North America. They were people that had been subjected to this torture and the separation from themselves for centuries when they got here. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important piece, I think, um, that there's this ancestral grief that we're all carrying um, from that migration and that Inquisition time, and there was a lot of fear instilled. And so I think that drove a lot of people to do the things that they did and, and to migrate to the North America, and then to, to have this sense of power over and, and superiority, you know, with the natives. <clears throat> uh, that also was, was something that was, I think, engendered back in the European times, and um, so now we're, we're, we're at this place where we're talking about um, reparations 
and you know making some attempt attempt to compensate some of the peoples that were genocided or enslaved and so we're we're at this crossroads now where we have this opportunity to live in this field of love and and just be with what our history is and try to find a way for reconciliation and healing and um i think grief grief is uh one of the gateways for doing that that work and if we can if we can have the courage to step into what we fear um around around that grief piece and what we don't want to see sometimes i think it'll open it well i've seen it happen it opens people up in a new way and they do find the interconnectedness that they'd lost with both the earth and with other people and i think they become more human so that's that's really tying into that global piece again that if we if we can see other people on the planet as animate like you said with a soul then we're treating them differently and same way with the dna testing that's been done now uh once we find out that we have relations all over the world and oh we're connected to people in kajikistan or you know these other places in the world that we have our ancestry in then they no longer become the other uh, they're they're part of our ancestry and we're part of theirs and so then we're less less inclined i think to wage war against them once we realize that oh we all come from a similar place and we're actually all related and if we go back far enough um it's it sounds uh kind of unbelievable but if we go back far enough we're, we're all actually related so so that's a piece that i like to remind people too that we're not we're not really separate from from each other and we don't really have very different paths if we go back in time and so when we talk about private property or, or you know the native lands here that were that were stolen um we really we're really starting to talk about you know who whose land is this and can we really own land and so that's that's part of what you were talking about i think with the disconnection from that yeah well also i'll tack along with you to back to europe here i mean people that came from europe well obviously well we had the pope was considered that time the pope was considered god's emissary on earth and there was also this theology about divine right of kings and queens so everybody mm-hmm. everybody was really in a subservient position mm. i know people i know that racism can be a real thing but racism can be manufactured too now there's some poor poor people in europe say he can't feed his, he, they can't feed their family they're kept in poverty and somebody comes along one day and says, "Hey, if you sail over there, you could have a farm. You could have some place to be with your family." I, I think some people are going to take that rather than stay with, with this poverty and oppression that was designed around them in Europe. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I even think about when once people were here, say they're living in, in Philadelphia, in Washington, New York City, or something over there. You know, you have to be pretty desperate to take to be one of these settlers to to get in a wagon, travel thousands of miles across deserts and mountains and plains and 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to cross these swollen rivers. And, oh, by the way, if you you just might happen to run into some pissed-off Indian and like to stick a couple arrows in you, too. You know, I mean, you, you, have to be pretty, you have to be in pretty dire straits to take that deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So, so we're motivated, you know, in different ways. So to, to bring it back into the, the realm of the grief, um, you know, the, the potato fam- famine is, is certainly a great example of what, what caused a lot of people to, to migrate. Mm-hmm. And there was also a lot of grief involved, a lot of, a lot of loss there of life. And so they were desperate. You know, they were in these uh, dire places where they really wanted to find a new life, and they were willing to take a chance of going across the ocean on a boat and the then hi- trying to find some place to settle in it. It was very, very difficult. The history, of what, starving, the, the history of what the <laughs> English did to the Irish is, is horrifying. Right, right. So, if you, like you said, if you're dealing with oppression and poverty and maybe lack of food, um, you get to a place where, where you're willing to take some, some big risks. And um, so, so there was a you know, yeah, there was a lot of grief involved with that, but there was a desperation, and um, it motivated people. So, how do you see this? We're we're obviously ranging pretty far here in th- these things we're talking about. How do you yeah. see? How do you see ex- reinvigorating grief rituals as ways to to help us deal with some of the horrors of our past? Yeah, that's a great question, too. Um, I have experienced uh, some people who have come, and I'm, I'm thinking of a Filipino woman who had expressed this grave, grave sorrow around losing some of her people and the lands uh, to development. And um, so when we talk, when we talk about this, uh, this huge loss, it conjures up a lot of grief, but I think if we if we can tap into that, then it gives us a chance to heal it. Um, so that's that's really what what the ritual is about. It's it's really about acknowledging, honoring, and hopefully releasing some of that uh, grief that's been that's been stored in our bodies and in our psyches for sometimes many generations or. Or even longer. Well, Taylor, I, I would like you to, if you could, describe some of the mechanics of a grief ritual for our audience here tonight. Okay. Yeah. What, what yeah, kind of tools do you, do you use uh, to get at these these deeply seated issues? Yeah. Yeah. So typically, what we'll do is we'll we'll start off with some singing and some poetry. And that helps people get grounded and be present and to come into this communal space together and create a little village, um, especially with the smaller groups. And then I, t- I talk about these different sort of gateways to, uh, to grief and, you know, the sorrows of the world and some of the things we expected as children that we did not get, uh, the ancestral grief, of, of course. And then some of the, the places that have not known love in us. That's, that's another one that I talk about. And then we, we, we like to go into these um, dyads or triads of people 
and we invite them to write 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 a shuttle exercise um, where we give them prompts, um, and we we invite them to write for about ten minutes, and um, so I can give you give you an example of something like that. Um, so one of the prompts might might be, "I gave my heart." I refuse, or I remember, and then we invite them to to just write a stream of consciousness without stopping, without really thinking, and and then at the end of that, they get to share what they wrote um, if they want to. They don't have to. There's no no pressure around sharing it, but most people are interested in sharing it. And the only thing we say at the end of it is, thank you. And we never ask a question about it, ever. Mm. So they they know that it's sacred and, and safe, what they're revealing. Because sometimes it's, you know, it's very, very deep personal stuff that maybe they haven't shared with anyone else. And so we say thank you, and then we move on to the next person, and they share. And throughout the sharing period people realize that they're not the only ones who've had these traumas and losses and that this grief place is a common ground that everyone shares. And so without, you know, comparing, you know, one one loss to another, we get to just hold each other, again, in this field of love and compassion around how all of us have, have experienced some kind of loss. And then after that, we usually do some, some more singing and uh, bringing people together. Uh, we take a break. And then after we feel like there's been enough of that process and people, people have accessed their grief um, and they're ready to release it, we, we build a beautiful altar and, or shrine where we bring all of our sacred pieces together, photographs, um, childhood, you know, treasures, and we place them on the altar with flowers, and it's this giant shrine um, just just adorned with all kinds of beautiful things and memories, and that becomes the place where people can can honor whatever they, they want to honor there. And then, um, then we go into some more of the circles and the sharings. Sometimes we invite, in a larger group, we'll invite people to share in a larger group if they want to. And then at the end of all of this is, um, is, is usually um, what we call a, a wailing wall that we build. And so some of, the, some of the pieces and items from the shrine that we built get transferred onto that, that that other altar, new altar, and then that becomes the sacred place for us to to release our, our grief. And so we set up a, a place that allows for people to be comfortable and be held, and then we always have um, a support person um, to, to be with with the person who goes to the, the wailing wall and and so they, they can feel that they're not alone. 
and then the rest of the the group or community sings and drums while they go up to the shrine and and release whatever they need to release that's that's come up through this process. So that's a that's a very abbreviated description of what goes on in the ritual time, but mm. hopefully that gives your listeners some idea. It does, I think. <clears throat> I would like I have more questions for you. I also would like to open up, up the phone lines if people want to call in and talk to my my guest here, Taylor Lampson. I'll reintroduce him. Taylor is a spiritual life coach based in Sonoma County, California. Taylor, will you share your website, please, in case people would like to contact you or learn more? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, it's www.lifepathguide.net. And if people would like to join our conversation, our phone here, of course, is 707-895-2448. And I will make an observation for myself uh, about the commonality of grief. Taylor, since I've had my stroke, obviously I'm pretty dinged up. I mean, I, I graduated from a cane to a walking stick a long time ago. And someday, on a good day, I can, call, I can walk around without my stick for a bit if it's a safe place. But I actually, I actually like that, that I'm dinged up in that people, if, when I, when I embrace the idea of, people sometimes they want to feel sorry for me and I don't really want that. I feel like on days when I say, where, where I have gone is where we're all going because everything is impermanent. So these mm-hmm. buys, these buys are a very temporary vehicle, and so anybody can look at me and say, "Boy, life hammered that guy." It sure did. When I hold that in my heart, in my mind, the mm-hmm. opening between me and people are astounding. When I just not ashamed of it or feel sorry for myself or let other people feel sorry for me, when I just hold the space, yeah. These bodies, they're temporary. <laughs> they're really temporary. Anything that happens to me, anytime. When I hold that in my heart, the interactions I have with people, I mean, strangers on the street, I was like, some days I get home, and I just scratch my head, I can't believe it. But just from mm-hmm. embracing, the, embracing that space, out of uh, no shame, just, just saying, yep, <laughs> my hand doesn't work, I hobble around, you're, you're, you're headed this way too. <laughs> and we're all going to be food for worms soon enough. That's right, and there's there's always some diminishment that happens over time. So I think that that's that's something that's also a common ground that we all share is that there will be diminishment in our physical bodies, and if we attach our identity to that or we try to hold on to that, um, that's going to ca- cause actually some grief. But it can be a blessing, like you said at times when if you're authentic in where you are and who you are, people recognize that. And it becomes what I would call an invitation to intimacy. And, you know, for most of us, when we're walking around and we're relatively healthy, we go about our business and we're not really paying attention maybe to some of the things around us. But when we, when we see something that's different, I, I think it conjures up some compassion in us, and I think I think everyone on some level realizes that. 
that could be me. You know, there's no there's no guarantees in life, and so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a a memory um, that we that we create for ourselves, and so then then we have a different outlook, and we realize that oh, yeah, I remember when I got injured and I had to walk around with crutches or whatever and what that felt like to be vulnerable and not have a strong body. So I, I think it I think it invites people into a, a different kind of space that's more vulnerable and and more authentic in a way. So it's it's certainly not a blessing to have to have a stroke or to, to have some kind of uh, illness or or handicap, but some people I've heard people say that and um you know, it's not something they wish on anyone or wish for no. themselves. <laughs> I would. And um, at the same time, if if they're comfortable, like you become with it, um, and surrender to the the truth of it and the reality of it, then then it can become this place where people want to want to know, you know, more. There's some inquiry, and then you get to connect with them on a different level. Yes, thank you for that. I'm going to tell the listeners one more time. I have another question for you. Of course, if you want to get in on my conversation, this is Chris Skyhawk. I'm interviewing Taylor Lamson, 707-895-2448. I wanted to ask you, Taylor, you were giving us the mechanics of, of, of how a grief ritual looks or things people might expect if they participate in something that you've helped engineer. Mm. I'm curious also... You and I met at Men's Retreat, and I know you've done a lot of work with men, but I imagine at some of these grief rituals you do, it's probably mixed men and women. Is that true? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious how that maps out and that there's so much conflict between between the genders, politically, economically, mm-hmm. spiritually, sexually, the list goes on. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering how the ritual can help men and women to break down some of these barriers or what's your experience of it? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's worthy of, of, uh, exploring because both genders and all, all genders, whatever people identify with now have had some struggle. And, um, I started a mixed, what I call a mixed gender group uh, a couple of years ago now. And so, I've invited a, you know, a diverse group of people together to, to come together and share what their experience has been. And in the ritual space, it's, it's a little different because it's, it's, it's really unique in that it's, it's a container that you're, you're probably not going to find anywhere else. Um, but I, what I find is that there is some healing that goes on between men and women and, and the various genders because they they can see that everyone has these losses and becomes this common ground. So there's there's a sense of communal grief that we we can all share and relate to because everyone has had some form of loss in their life. So I, I like bringing you know men and women together, and I've also done some grief rituals just for for men. I haven't 
I haven't done one yet just for women. Well, actually, I did one. That yeah, was the sisters of a Catholic church, actually. I did one. Um, and they were grieving the loss of not having more young women interested in going into the, you know, the the training that they do to be, become nuns. And not, not surprisingly, it's not a pathway that's popular. Um, and so they were actually wanting a, a, a grief ritual around that, that they were getting older and seeing their members pass away, and it was hard to recruit new members to the to the nunnery. And um, so they, they wanted to, to release that. So in that case, I had a co-facilitator who was female, and I think that, that helped to balance things. So there's aspects of, you know, coming together in a group that I think are, are more balanced if there's men and women together. I think the women bring their own unique quality and the men bring theirs. And if they can be authentic in who they are and what they're showing up with, then I think some of, some of those old paradigms or ways of being with each other fall away. And it becomes more of a human experience that's not, not so much gender related. So that's, that's what I would say about that. Hmm. I wonder if you could address the issue of, <clears throat> you and I are both European-Americans, and it's been, uh, uh, I think, a completely appropriate a point that many First Nations people have had that European-Americans uh, engage in a lot of cultural appropriation of Native rituals. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. some white guy dancing around with the eel feather, giving itself the name, I'm shit. I'm shaman of the bears or something, you know, and that pisses mm-hmm, off. Mm-hmm. That pisses off a lot of First Nations people, right? And I think they have and, a point. Right. I wonder if you could they address do. that. Yeah, rightfully so. I I definitely sympathize with that, and the appropriation piece is is definitely challenging. It's 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 something that we have to re- really be aware of and, and really consciously acknowledge. Um, so, for example, when when we conduct a ritual will say, you know, where we are in terms of what the native land was before the settlers came and honor that we're on this land that was actually Pomo or Miwok or Kashaya or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so that's important. The other piece that I wanted to mention, too, is that these rituals uh, originate from tribal communities. Um, the one that has been modeled probably the most is from Africa. Uh, there was a couple uh, that came over and they made it their life's work um, through their medicine work and and so forth with their own tribes to be a bridge between those tribal communities and the West in this case. Are you, are you? I'm sorry. Are you? Are you mentioning? Are you thinking of Maladoma Somme here? Yeah, I'm. I'm speaking of Maladoma and Sabunfu Somme. Okay. Uh, th- those two in particular have brought a lot of the wisdom of the tribal cultures from Africa, and the rituals that that they've used. And so that's that's definitely an example of 
where where we we really need to honor that piece that we're not appropriating it it was it was brought over and and offered to people as medicine and so they came and taught some people um, like Francis Weller and other people who could take this ritual and adapt it for use in in Western culture. I think, if so, I remember correctly, wasn't Maladome actually commissioned by his elders to do this? Mm-hmm. In a way, yeah. It turns out that uh, he he had a, he had his own vision around it, and and the elders definitely mentored him in that direction, and to see that he wasn't he wasn't going to be one of the the tribal members there. He had a a mission out in the world that he needed to fulfill. So the elders definitely supported and engendered that in him. And and actually, part of it was he he ran away when he was a teenager, and and um, when he finally when he finally came back, uh, then he he realized that he wasn't meant to be with the tribe. So he had this sort of revelation, I think. Uh, personally, on his on his own too, and then he met Sabunfu, and they realized they were they were going to be a team. So it's it's so the the key point here is it's not appropriation if we're you know taking this this information that has been offered and given freely uh, versus you know hearing about you know a ritual that the Aborigines do in Australia and then mimicking that 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 would be more of an appropriation uh i think so that that's a that's a good distinction to have that if we're going to use some of these these rituals or native american rituals for that matter and that influence we really we really need to honor and acknowledge where they come from or where they originate and and where you know where we got the knowledge from so that we're not just appropriating it and we want to use it in a good way, so we have to be aware of that, and I'll always always acknowledge that as, as part of the ritual. Yes, and I will say, in my own journey through this life, is is part of it has been the realization. Yes, yes, the Europeans are lost. <laughs> we are lost. That's 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 part mm-hmm. of the grief too. We are lost. Something happened in Europe. We got severed from our. From our humanity, we did. It's true, and so we have to we have to recover that somehow. Mm-hmm. I wrote. A, I wish <clears throat> a couple of things. My my brain is really going quickly now. I want to mention the book Maladoma wrote. I think it was called "Of Water and the Spirit." Right? Is my read about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah. I read that years ago. I had forgotten about it until you just mentioned Maladoma tonight. It's a Incredible book. I really recommend Meldoma Somme of Water and the Spirit. It talks about his journey and his insights and his culture and him being commissioned to come into the Western world because the West, the West really need, <laughs> they really need what Africa had to offer. And he realized yeah. that so is Elders. It's a, it's a remarkable yeah. book. And uh, Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So as a young man. Yeah, so he brought that over. And he did. It became, he did. It became a, a ritual, um, and then I'll mention Francis Weller's name again because he really did a lot of the pioneering work for the grief ritual. Yeah, please, thank you. And um, 
and he wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. So that's also something to, to note for the listeners. But he actually he actually went back with Maladoma to Africa, to Burkina Faso, and saw what they did firsthand and got permission to use those rituals. So it, it, it's a very different thing to go and immerse yourself and meet those people where they are and ask permission to bring something and then have Maladoma say, yes, that's, that's part of my life's work is to bring this and be a bridge between my African ancestry and, and the West so that there can be some healing because there, there was so much trauma, um, as we all know. So, Africa. Taylor, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're coming yeah. close to 8 o'clock already. I can't believe it. Oh, yeah, and time just flies. We, right? Yes, we, I, I would like to have a closing thought or two from you, and then we'll have a closing song, and, and it'll be 8 o'clock. <laughs> I can't believe it. Yeah. So go ahead. Um, let's, let's, let's see your closing thoughts. Okay, yeah, thanks. So I'm, I'm grateful that you, you've come to this place where you, you want to have this kind of a show, and that I, I hope there's some listeners that are interested in it. And I think grief is the gateway to a healing that is, is needed in the world. And so wherever we find uh, a place that we feel safe, that we can express that with our close friend, with a parent, with a child, with whomever we feel safe enough to really share those deepest sorrows with and feel held, I think that's, that's the first step to really doing the healing that need, needs to happen. And I think that's true of the traumas as well. If we can, if we can feel heard, if we can tell a story that, and feel heard, I think that's that's really the initial place to start for the healing work. My friend, I I appreciate your beautiful words, and we're just going to have to end this interview because we are at the top of the hour. That's almost. right. Yeah. And are you going to do the song? Yeah, we have we have a CD here. So I'll just remind okay. if people, if you want to continue this conversation with Taylor, his website is lifepathguide.net. And there was contact information there if you wanted to have more discussion with him. And I guess we have to get out of here, Hubbard. Once again, this is Chris Skyhawk with Universe Perspectives. The show has been Surviving Late Stage Capitalism, What's Next? Thank you for Taylor Lamson for being with us. We're going to take our, our song now to close the show called Walking in Power by Dana Dollinger. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Dreams until the hour you...